Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4. And you'll want to follow along with the outline that we make available each week for those that are watching on live stream uh, beside or underneath the media player. There's a button that says outline, so you can follow there. For those here uh, on site, we had those available at the main doors when you came in. We're continuing our series in the book of Proverbs, and we're in the introduction that goes all the way through chapter 9, and through those nine chapters, it contains a series of ten lectures on wisdom that set the foundation for the rest of the book's short sayings, the things that we normally associate uh, with Proverbs when we think of this book. Today, we're going to be looking at the fifth of those ten lectures. So let's bow now and ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we thank you again now for allowing us the opportunity to be in your presence. Whether here on site or participating by live stream, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you that we have your word preserved for us in our day, given to us in our language so that we can learn of and about you and then serve you and please you. And it's to that end that we open Scripture today. We ask you to help us then to have open hearts and attentive minds so that we can indeed be conformed better to the image of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in that outline, first of all, we're going to see from Proverbs chapter 4 that wisdom is passed on. It's passed on generationally. Verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 4 says this, Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Now, at first, that sounds like what we've heard already several times in the previous lessons that the father has given to his son. The very first of these lessons in chapter 1 and verse 8 started, Listen, my son. And then the second lecture in chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My son, accept my words. The third lesson in chapter 3 and verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching. And the fourth that we saw last week in chapter 3 and verse 21 says, My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Now we come to this fifth of the father's ten lessons, and it says, Listen, my sons, to a father's instructions. So it seems pretty much to be starting the same way as those previous four. But we need to notice a few things about this. Every one of the prior four lessons has been addressed to my son. Listen, my son. Accept, my son. Do not forget, my son. Do not let wisdom out of your sight, my son. Now, the translators in many versions then have started this fifth lecture that same way. Listen, my sons. But here's the thing. That word, my, is not found. In chapter 4 and verse 1, in the original Hebrew, like it is in the others. It's literally here just this, listen, sons. So some translations like the New American Standard or the English Standard Version say, listen, O sons, instead of my sons. Now that's important. Because this lecture is first addressing sons and children in general. It's saying, listen up, all sons, all children. And that interpretation is reinforced because verse 1 says this, 
Listen, sons, to a father's instruction. Notice that. That it's, again, generic. Listen, all sons, all children, to whoever your father happens to be. Listen to a father's instruction. What it's saying is that all children should listen in all generations to what their fathers, and by extension, what their mothers teach them. Now I say all generations because look at what verse 3 says. I too was a son to my father. And verse 4 says, then he taught me and said to me. And then goes on in verses 5 through 9 to pass on what his father taught him. So what this fifth lecture in the book of Proverbs is about and why it differs from the others is that its focus is on the value of generational teaching. It's highlighting the value of good tradition from one generation to the next. Because this point is what the passage is about, I want to spend a good bit of time on it and a bit less on the other points in today's outline. Now, I said this passage is highlighting the values of good tradition from one generation to the next. And I have to emphasize good tradition because many of us have a negative view of tradition, and often we have that negative view of tradition for good reasons. The retired former president of Northland International University, Les Olala, some of you might remember that uh, Les was with us here at CBC a few years ago. He used to talk about how some church traditions develop. And he said, first, you go to Scripture and you find a command that God gives us to carry out. So let's say the command to evangelize, to give the gospel out. And then you, he says, develop a method to do that. So to evangelize, let's say we develop the method of going door to door on Saturday mornings in the surrounding neighborhoods. And he says, if you give that enough time, it becomes a tradition. We've always done it that way. Saturday morning, go door to door in the neighborhood. Over more time, he says, that method becomes a biblical requirement. <laughs> Not only have we always done it that way, Paul did it <laughs> that way. I heard a story many years ago about how we just do things because we've always done them without sometimes thinking about them. A young mother is cooking roast for dinner. She has her very young daughter with her watching and helping. And the first thing the mom does is she cuts off the end of the roast and she throws it away. And the daughter asks her why she does that. And the mom says, well, your grandmother always did. And she calls her mom and she says, why do we always cut off the end of the roast? And she says to her that her mom always did. And her mom's still living, and so she calls her and she asks, why do we cut off the end of the roast? And the mom says, I don't know why you do it. I did it because I never had a large enough pan. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot of roast going to waste over a few generations. It's true, isn't it, that too often we, we mindlessly do things simply because we always have. And so as a result of that, we come to associate tradition with just going through the motions. Doing it simply because we've always done it, with no one stepping back to ask why we're, we're doing it, just mindlessly stepping through our routine. 
And that's especially harmful when it's applied to something extremely important, more important than the end of a roast. What about when it's applied to spiritual and religious training? Many of you have grown up in church environments in which you just went through the motions. Perhaps you had to go to catechism. And then, when that was completed, you would make your first communion. Then sometime later, you were qualified for confirmation. Your family may well have celebrated these events, but for you, they were just memorizing some stuff so that you could achieve the milestone, and then you moved on with it really meaning nothing to you and making no lasting difference for you. There's a difference between tradition, which can be good, and traditionalism, which is always bad. Traditionalism is just going through the motions kind of stuff that we rightly dislike. But tradition need not be traditionalism. Someone has said that traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, whereas tradition is the living faith of the dead. And what this father in Proverbs 4 is passing on is the living faith of his father. Even though his father is now apparently gone, because he does not say to this son, remember what grandpa used to say? Instead, the father informs the son about how his dad made such a positive impact on him during his youth. The end of verse 1 says the son, the child, it says the end of verse 1 should pay attention and gain understanding. Verse 2, I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. Now why? Why should you pay attention? And what proves that what the father is teaching is indeed sound? Verse 3 gives the answer. Here's why. You should listen, pay attention. And you can know that my teaching is sound. Verse 3, 4. Notice it starts with that word, 4. That is because I too was a son to my father. And verse 4 says that this is what he taught me. That is, you should listen, son, because what I'm telling you has stood the test of time. It didn't start with me, and Lord willing, it won't end with me in our family line because you're going to take it, and you're going to live it, and you're going to pass it on too. Now, this idea of the value of the teaching being enhanced because it's been proven in the lives of those who've gone before is extremely important. The Bible emphasizes it. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, after recounting in the famous passage in Hebrews chapter 11 that many of you are familiar with. We call it sometimes Faith's Hall of Fame because it has there listed all of these people that have gone in the past and have done all these exploits for the Lord and all of them have done it by believing, having faith in what the Lord has said. So by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Noah, and on it goes. And then after all of that, you come to chapter 12, right at the beginning, and it says this. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. When it says that, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Many people have thought that to mean that when folks die, they go to heaven, that they look down on us from heaven. It's not what it's saying. 
It's saying we're surrounded by the testimony, the witness of all of these people who have gone before, and I've listed a bunch of them for you, says the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 11. And since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, now we need to take the baton and run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. They all had theirs. Now we have ours. This is why I asked Pastor Larry to use 2 Timothy 3 and 4 as today's scripture reading. Because it deals with young Timothy and his mentor Paul reminding Timothy that the faith that's now entrusted to Timothy did not start with him and it should not end with him. Paul says to this same Timothy in that same letter of 2 Timothy this, the things you, Timothy, I want you to notice how many generations we have in this one verse. The things you, Timothy, one generation, have heard me say, another generation, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people, another, so that they will be able, qualified, to teach others, yet another. This idea of the faith being entrusted and then passed on from generation to generation is found out is found throughout Scripture. Tradition is this, previous generations handing down to us something of their own. And our forefathers and our foremothers are not disqualified from speaking into our lives simply because they're now gone, friends. Matter of fact, they have the advantage over us because they have fought the good fight. They've finished the race. They have kept the faith. People who have gone before have the advantage of a fully proven life. You see, you and I today and every, everybody else living is less than prove, fully proven. We can still fail. Whereas those who are gone cannot. They made it with their integrity intact. Just in the last few weeks, yet more well-known names in the evangelical world have fallen. It's one of the reasons that I so seldom use contemporary names when I'm, when I'm preaching, because people will hear me use the name and think I'm giving a full endorsement. And then later, that person falls, that person begins to teach something askew or goes awry in the morality. And so if I quote something, I often say something like one commentator has said or one preacher has said. For that very reason. Now speaking of, one preacher has said this. Those who have already gone the distance have something to say that we do not. Proverbs 4 is alerting us to the value of past voices. Let's think just briefly and selectively about what we stand to gain from our tradition as Christians. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus, maybe 60 generations. If we figure about 33 years per generation, about 12 generations into this historical flow, along came a man named Augustine. He taught us that God made us for Himself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. And Augustine did find that rest. 
And he says about 32 generations into this flow, along came a man named Anselm. He taught us that until we come to Christ, we cannot know what a heavy weight sin is. And for Anselm, that weight was lifted away. About 45 generations into it, along came a man named Martin Luther. He taught us that God treats bad people like good people through the finished work of Christ on the cross, received by mere faith. And Luther entered into that grace. About 53 generations into it, along came a man named Jonathan Edwards. He taught us that real Christianity is a miracle, and as God powerfully awakens dead hearts with new affections for Christ. And God gave that miracle to Edwards. And then he goes on to say, about 59 generations into it, along came my dad. He taught me what a genuine church looks like. And God honored his teaching in his life and mind. The Bible says this, friends. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Notice that the outcome of their way. These are people who have gone before. Remember that and imitate their faith. We don't have to imitate their style, but we would be fools not to imitate their faith. It took them all the way through life and into eternal life. So rather than decrying history, as we often do, with the arrogance of the present, and we decry history and we demean history as just stuff about a bunch of old dead guys. We hear this. (laughs) Old dead guys and old dead gals speak from proven experience. And what are all of these Christian generations telling us? They're telling us Jesus didn't fail us and he will not fail you. This is why we're playing the long game at our church. God has given us 20 years that we will celebrate this year. But in all of those 20 years, and Lord willing, looking ahead to another 20 and another 20 after that, we've been playing the long game. We want to see the next generation take the baton and raise their children as we've raised them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's why it's so gratifying to see the young people who've grown up here in our church starting now their own adult lives, many of their own homes and families. And in the premarital counseling material that I use with these engaged couples, we cover the fact that one of the purposes for which God has given marriage is to multiply a godly legacy. That's what we're hoping to do for Christ's sake. That's why the title of this message at the top of your outline is Multiplying Wisdom. Because that's what Proverbs 4 is about. Wisdom is passed on generationally. And, I say in your outline, it's passed on relationally. Generationally, but also relationally. And it's passed on relationally when, I say, the student desires to receive it. Again, verse 3. For I too son, was a son to my father. Now the way that first line in verse 3 is worded in Hebrew 
saying, I was a son of my father rather than I was a child to my father. It's signifying that the son sought to become like his father. One Old Testament scholar says this, as a seed's genetic code patterns exactly the code of the seed bearer, he as true son to my father reproduced the father's spiritual nature. In Hebrew thought, sonship was understood not as a matter of biology, but as a matter of obedience. A rebellious child was disowned. The English language cannot capture this notion by the simple, I was a son. It can be helped by thinking of it this way, I was an obedient son. Generally, that's what sons do. They want to please their dads by being like them. It's often true that daughters want to do the same, especially if they've been treasured by their dads. Just as an aside, girls who are loved by their fathers, studies show, are less promiscuous than those who feel the need to find affection from a man some other way. Wisdom is passed on relationally as the student desires to receive it, and the teacher desires to give it. The student, the the son's desire to receive the instruction of his father comes not only from wanting to emulate his dad, but because he knows he's a beloved member of the family. He says in verse 3, I was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. The word that's translated cherished means the mother treats him as the only one, even though he may have siblings. He is and is made to feel that he is special. The son is cherished by his mother and his father pays attention to him, intentionally seeking to impart wisdom to to him. So verse 4 says, Then he taught me and he said to me. And verse 3 says this all started when I was still tender. That is, it started when I was very young. In that day, the father would begin the teaching soon after the child had been weaned. And in the ancient Near East, weaning happened after three years of age. So this father wants to impart his wisdom. He doesn't need to be dragged into being a dad to his son. Unlike that great theologian Harry Chapin said in The Cats in the Cradle, My child arrived just the other day. He came into the world in the usual way. But there are planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And as he was talking, before I knew it, and as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know, I'm going to be like you. All of this. The father's evident desire to teach his son, the mother's tender care and affection for him, all of that sets the relational context for his moral education. These parents have created the best environment possible for a favorable response. It doesn't guarantee a favorable response. But they've set the best environment possible for that favorable response. And that's because, friends, we all live out of a sense of identity. We all live and we all behave out of a sense of who we believe ourselves to be. We're going to rehearse that a bit tonight 
in our community groups. One of our questions has to do with that very thing. And you see that idea in Scripture, that we live out of a sense of identity, and that is why in the letters of Paul, for example, in your New Testament, he most often has two sections to his letters. He'll have a section that tells us who we are. He spends a lot of time making sure that you know who you are in Christ before he starts telling you what you're to do for Christ. That pattern's important. And that order is important. Because the Bible doesn't simply come and say, now do this and behave this way. The Bible says this is who you are, and therefore because of who you are, now in keeping with that, you behave this way. It tells us who we are and whose we are before it tells us what to do. And that's how we successfully educate our children. That's how you successfully educate anyone. You let them know how much you care for them. You let them know how special and cherished they are. And now they are open to your instruction. A loved and secure child is a trusting child, and I might add, a smarter child. <laughs> really. I mean, studies have shown that when a baby is cherished and nourished from moment one regularly and shown affection and given touch and given sound and tender sound, that there are neurological connections being made and the synapses begin to fire on all cylinders. Remember when we had Lainey and Kim and I had been praying for having a child for a number of years and then God graced us with our first with Lainey and we had read a lot of books on raising a child and somewhere we got that, thank the Lord. And that idea to just... Just keep doing that. Do that in the early days. Do that while she's still in the womb. Because wisdom comes relationally. So it's passed on generationally, relationally, and, I say in your outline, experientially. Now here, after all of that, in chapter 4 is really the lesson itself. It's all been set up by this father to say to his son, this is what my father taught me. And this is something that I'm passing on to you to pass on because wisdom is to be passed on generationally. But now in the middle of verse 4 begins actually a recounting of what the grandfather had taught to the father and he's now teaching to the son. Middle of verse 4, take hold of my words with all your heart Keep my commands and you will live. Do what I did with my father's words. And you, son, will live like you see me living. Your life will be as life is designed to be, not the way the world distorts it. You, son, see that in our home, and you can and you should replicate it in yours. You can experience what I've experienced. And here's how. Verse 5. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. 
You can experience this. Wisdom is passed on through my experience that I got from my Father that I'm now passing on to you. It's passed on experientially, resulting in the student being, I say, guarded. The Father's advice to the Son in order to live a blessed life is really this. It's really, find a good girl. But no, actually, it's find the very best girl. And in this lesson, the girl is none other than wisdom itself. Wisdom herself. Get a good girl. No, get the best girl. And the best girl is wisdom. If you treat wisdom like you should treat a wife, she will respond to you in ways that enhance your life. Later in the book of Proverbs, wisdom's personified as a woman, and you see a hint of that here in verse 6. Do not forsake wisdom, and notice she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. You do this, son. You betroth, and you marry Lady Wisdom. And you will avoid all the unnecessary problems that foolishness produces. Now again, as I've said in previous weeks, it's not you're going to avoid all the consequences of living in a fallen world, but you will avoid creating more of those yourself for yourself. So get a good girl. The best girl is actually wisdom. So it results in you being guarded, protected, from the foolishness that you will contribute to and create otherwise, and the student will be, I say in the outline, rewarded. Verse 8 says, cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her, she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Take this one, the Father is saying. Wisdom, as your figurative wife, and you'll choose well when it comes to actually choosing a wife. In fact, you'll choose all things well. And that will exalt and honor you. And it'll be obvious to those who see your life, just like a garland of grace on your head and a crown are conspicuous, so too is going to be the fruit of your pursuit, namely of wisdom. That's what you'll experience. And you can then pass it on to your children to experience like I'm doing now with you. But here's the bottom line requirement. You have to, son, you have to want it. You have to see its value and go after it. I'm trying to show you its worth in my life lived before you, son or daughter, but you have to decide whether you believe it's the best life or whether something's being withheld from you. Isn't that the crossroads that every person comes to at some point? I've, been, I've seen this, I've been taught this, if you've been blessed to be in a Christian home. But is something being withheld? There's something better out there? I might need to stick my toe maybe my whole self into it for a period of time just to find out, just to experiment. Sometimes it's not just the experiment. Next thing I know, the undertow has taken me much further out than I thought, and I don't know how I got out here, and I don't know how to get back. 
So, son, daughter, you've got to decide, are we good authorities and models in your life? Placed here by a good God with your best interest in mind? Or are we obstacles to what really satisfies? So that you need to break free and experience what you're being denied. So do you want it? What's it worth to you? Verses 5 and 7 both say that it begins with wanting it and then going after it. Verse 5, get wisdom. Verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. <laughs> notice, notice how what it says. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. What it's saying is it all starts with you wanting it. The wisest thing you can say to yourself is, I need this, I want this, and then pursue this. The beginning of wisdom is the commitment to pursue wisdom, the commitment to get it above all else. Middle of verse 7, though it costs all you have, get understanding. God the Father is looking into your eyes with great love as His own child and saying this to you right now, whatever you get, get wisdom. One preacher has said, if you want God's wisdom, it will cost you. It will cost you all your preconceived ideas about how life is supposed to work. Why pay that price? Because God's wisdom will make you alive, verse 4. His wisdom will keep you and guard you, verse 6. His wisdom will exalt and honor you and crown you, verses 8 and 9. This is how life really works. And that's a life worth living. And who else can promise you that? Every day you're being told that if we want to live, we need to be young, we need to be thin, we need to be tanned, sexually active, rich, and smart mouth. <laughs> That's our cultural ideal, the wisdom of our age. But just one question, is it really working? If you actually got a hold of all of that, would you walk away from it a complete human being? All of those young Thin, tan, sexually active, rich, smart-mouthed people. Name one person that's thrown himself into that life and come away from it with what you want for yourself. Name one. And how do you explain 2,000 years of all types of people from different cultures who set their hearts on Christ, turned to His wisdom in the Bible, and found fullness of life? You, yes, young person, but every person, you have a choice today. The proven way of Christ versus the defunct way of man. Whichever way you choose, it will cost you all you have. But which path will give you everything you want? Jesus is so gracious. To follow Him, you do not need to measure up to a cultural ideal of youth and coolness. But you do need to become decisive. Though it costs you all you have, and it will. Get Christ. Here's your take-home truth. Wisdom is to be pursued and passed on. Now, getting wisdom, getting Christ, starts by coming to Christ. A commitment to follow Him with your life. Giving your life to Him because He gave His for you. 
And so that means doing what we often put on the screen for you to realize where you are. Realize you're a sinner. And recognize that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. He's done what, nece- what is necessary for you to begin that relationship with Him and then to grow deeper in that relationship. Repent. I'm not going to go my way. I'm going to go w- your way. That's what we mean by repent, Lord. I'm going to follow you. Give up my way. And receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. And as we bow and pray, two kinds of people every week, those who belong to Jesus and those who do not, as yet. For those who do not, do that. Pray from your heart, in your own words, to the Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe He's the way to wisdom. I want to give my life to Him and no longer go my way. You say that to Him and begin your relationship with Christ then. For those of us who do know Christ, let's ask Him to grant us greater wisdom, greater desire to follow Him an opportunity to show others that this life is true life. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you again for gathering us, for allowing us to open your word. Thank you for instructing us in the book of Proverbs. Thank you for the generations that have gone before, who by their words and by their lives have modeled for us what true life is. And because they found what was of greatest value in all the universe, namely you, and the wisdom that only you impart, because they found that, they lived distinctive lives. They lived full lives. And everything that happened to them, even if the circumstances were unhappy, they found joy. And so, Lord, help us to be people who see that and desire that so that we get wisdom. And put everything else aside and prioritize it because we prioritize you. Help us in our families to generationally pass on wisdom. To do it in a relational context that shows our children how much we value them, and how much we want what's spiritually best for them. But Lord, we must model it before them. We've got to model before them that this is life. This is indeed the best life. This is not something we have to do. This is something we get to do. Lord, as a result of that, may our families produce the next generation of your servants. May our church produce the next generation of your servants. And may, long after we are gone, there be mouths to praise you and lives to model your wisdom before a new generation. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together now for our closing song.